Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And folks, we have a really cool episode for you this week. Uh, we're going to actually talk about something we've never talked about before, and that is the legal model and what role the legal system can play in helping us deal with so many of the challenges we have to deal with as chronically ill Lyme disease patients. So uh, before we before we get too far into discussing legal issues, let me first uh, ask each of our guests to introduce themselves by first giving their name and giving a brief background about how they came to first become activists and ultimately uh, folks who then pivoted over to the legal system to begin to use some of those tools. So Lara, why don't we start with you? Uh, so my name is Lara Tillman. I grew up on the east end of Long Island, which is where I received my tick bite uh, in 1993. Um, it's been a long journey, almost 30 years, uh, lots of ups and downs. I got really serious about Lyme, I would say somewhere around um, 2015, 2016. Uh, that's when I met up with Laura. Um, around that time, all my bone marrow had burn, been burnt out. And it seemed, uh, you know, we found out after the fact that it was related to that original tick bite. Um, so uh, around that time, I got real passionate and was like many of your listeners trying to save my own life and um, getting to the core of diagnostics and why I couldn't get an accurate diagnosis and treatment uh, seemed a great place to start. <laughs> so Laura, why don't you say hi to the folks and give us a little background about your um, work in the community? Sure, uh, my name is Laura Hovind and I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called Truth Cures. And what we are trying to do is create the conditions for other nonprofits to do what they do better. Um, we're trying to trying to create a Lyme um, environment where we can actually get accurate tests and getting an accurate test ensures that you can get treatment that's going to be effective. Um, it's been a long journey getting here, as people probably can imagine. It's been it's been a lot like, a lot like what other people have been through. I think in many ways, it took took me actually fourteen years to get a diagnosis, because I lived in a place where Lyme just wasn't acknowledged. It just nobody knew about it, and nobody tested me, and I got about. 18 different diagnoses and none, none were accurate. Um, but I found a tick on my bed and about two years later, I put two and two together. And by then it was too late because I was managing my health on my own <laughs> and I figured, oh, I'll just let it go. Um, and it wasn't until I had a daughter who was seven years old and she started exhibiting symptoms that were very suspicious and I decided to get her tested. So that was actually about 20 years in. <laughs> and, um, you know, just like all the other mama bears out there, um, I think that was that was really enough to just put me over the edge and send me down down the rabbit hole and down down the path of activism. So we're, we're really sorry that you and your daughter had to deal with this, but we're happy to have you. Uh, and we're happy to have uh, you know the great work that you're doing 
at Truth uh, at Truth uh, Care. So thank goodness we have you. So um, uh, so Leo, uh, my uh, my my fellow lawyer, talk to us about uh, your personal journey with Lyme disease first. Uh, talk to us a little about your background as an attorney and 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 then begin to fill us in on how you came in contact with these two brilliant women. Sure. My name is Leo Oppenheimer. I was raised in Kansas City, Missouri by a, a mother from New England. So I spent my summers up here in Rhode Island specifically, and uh, Lyme disease was always top of mind with us, always checking for ticks, um, always careful about that, which in many ways makes my story very frustrating for me. Uh, in 2020, I was bitten by a tick uh, in Rhode Island. I was on my way, literally one foot out the door, down to back to Texas, where I was living at the time. Um, I took my tick to the doctor. I took myself to the doctor. I got a diagnostic test as soon as I arrived, and it came back negative. Um, turns out that was a false negative, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. But that really, uh, I missed my early treatment window. And now it's been three years and it's uh, still a, a very much a part of my daily life dealing with the symptoms of Lyme disease. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, the story of the lawsuit is, uh, is my story. Uh, this happened to me. And if it hadn't happened to me, I don't think that we would have been able to get this thing off the ground. Um, so what is this thing? Well, what this thing is now is it's it's a class action lawsuit that uh, I put together with Laura and Laura um, and, and uh, a great lady from Massachusetts. And what we're doing is we're bringing a, a set of consumer protection claims against a Lyme disease diagnostic company called Let's Get Checked. Let's Get Checked sells a suite of tests through the mail directly to regular folks. They're one of those new companies where uh, you, you prick your finger and send in a little bit of blood and they'll tell you all kinds of things, supposedly. Um, we decided to focus on them because the concern of diagnosing Lyme disease without a doctor being um, the CDC, which is not always most up-to-date on Lyme treatment, even they recognize that uh, Lyme disease needs to be diagnosed in person by a doctor uh, and preferably by a specialist. So that was where we started with these companies that were supposedly diagnosing people of Lyme disease through the mail. Um, Laura and Laura had been looking into Lyme disease diagnostics for years. And um, they called me out of the blue one day. They had seen another lawsuit that I had filed. And they asked me, you know, have you ever heard of Lyme disease? And I said, let me tell you my story. Uh, and this was just a cold call completely out of the blue. So once we figured out we were all kind of in the same boat, they came to meet me at my firm and uh, we started we started digging into the information that they had been compiling over the years. And uh, at first it, it was overwhelming. I mean, th these gals have been working really hard 
and uh, their scientific knowledge at the time far surpassed mine. So, so Leo, let me let me build that up before you think any further, because I, I do want to build out uh, the the work that was done leading up to the meeting with you. Uh, so, Laura, why don't you take us through some of the work that the uh, the two of you were doing together uh, that led up to all of these materials that you that you were bringing into your your now lawyer's office. Um, and and what were your desires? Meaning, what were you working toward when you when you formed the not for profit? Uh, and what were the goals that the two of you had in doing all this great work together? Well, uh, I think our story starts like a lot of other Lyme patients um, in bed with an iPad. <laughs> you know, that's where I started um, on Facebook trying to better my situation where I came across uh, Laura and another one of our colleagues uh, who used to work at Pfizer. And they started sharing some information on the science. Um, you know, they had a bit of a running start, right? So Laura had actually started before, before me, um, but I, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm reading this information. And quite frankly, it was a lot for me to digest too. Uh, a little overwhelming. So I had to take it in small chunks, you know, even though I've worked in biotech for many years, um, you know, when you're reading about something that's affecting you, uh, I really had to, you know, brace myself a little, but I knew what they were sharing was the truth. Like, you know, I had enough of a, a scientific background that I looked at this and I was like, oh boy, you know, um, but it resonated and I knew it was the truth. And so I started, um, uh, you know, talking to Laura and we built a relationship and, um, you know, we ended up that we worked really well together. Um, but like I mentioned, uh, Laura and our other colleague were a little ahead of me. So uh, why don't I flip it over to you, Laura, because you can really take things back to the way, way back, right? Yeah, the, the way, way back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is way, way back. I was, I was just literally trying to figure out if these antibiotics in my hand um, should be given to my daughter or not, knowing that she had congenital Lyme and knowing that I had been treated and it wasn't all that effective, is this going to hurt her or help her? And um, and so I, I dove down that rabbit hole and I started devouring the science, which is completely out of my wheelhouse, let me tell you. <laughs> But um, but it was like a, a splinter in my brain and I just could not let it go. And every, every um, clue led to another. And, you know, I, I joke that I, I've got these memes that I share of the FBI crime wall with all the red lines connecting. And that is literally what is going on inside my brain right yeah. now as we speak. It is happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so I had connected all these dots and I was furious and I was communicating this stuff on Facebook and I had people contacting me begging for help saying, mm -hmm. I cannot get out of bed I, or I've lost my home or my mm -hmm. family has disowned me. And how, how do you not do something when people are coming to you like that? I, I could not let it go. So this was no longer about me or my daughter. This was this was about all these other people out there who are who are being 
abused and neglected and given wrong diagnoses or no diagnoses and and why is that happening so so it was it was about you and your daughter and it was about you understanding that you and your daughter were being called to purpose right you were you were you were you were you were coming to understand what it is that you were supposed to do with this and that included starting a not-for-profit. But then the two of you as pillars of this not-for-profit started to take your your uh, your activism in a lot of different directions before you started down the legal route. So talk to us about mm -hmm. some of the things that the two of you were doing together as uh, partners in crime here and, mm -hmm. and what kinds of, uh, what kinds of uh, relief were you trying to get from the various governmental um, agencies that you were coming in contact with? Because we'd really like to hear those stories. Uh, well, I mean, I could probably give you quite a list. Um, you know, at various points, I've presented to Elizabeth Warren's healthcare policy point people. Uh, same with Edward Markey. Um, I remember calling the woman, I can't, I can't remember her last name, but her first name was Catherine. She heads the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. <laughs> um you know, I posted online locally. Most people really didn't really want to hear what I had to say, <laughs> but I, you know, I wanted to see, am I the only one here? Is anybody else concerned about this? Um, I, you know, I'm emailing doctors, emergency room physicians, friends of my parents. I mean, anybody um, who I, you know, for me, this was, um, like Laura said, it was my emergency, but then it quickly became everyone's emergency when you start having people coming to you, realizing that you work in biotech, that you might have maybe a little bit beyond the average knowledge. Um, you know, I was horrified that, you know, there were people suffering like me or sometimes even worse than me. And I think all these years with Lyme, I was hoping that I was just some random bad case, right? And then when I find out that no, it's it's literally millions of people, it you know it was it was breath it was breathtaking. So yeah, you know I just started sounding the alarm the alarm to to anybody I could write to um, from home, <laughs> or I, I I would I'm very good at queen of the cold call. <laughs> I just pick up the phone and I start screaming. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she picks up the phone one day and she calls the FBI. <laughs> Right. I mean, who well, does that? <laughs> you know, but by this time, we had uncovered so much fraud that I, I started getting really concerned that we had this knowledge and that, um, you know, those, um, you know, legal professionals or government officials, you know, like if people, I, I was getting very concerned that if people knew what we knew, that you know, we could actually be um, in jeopardy, quite frankly. Um, you, know, when, you know, I think we all know that when you go deep into the line, um, that a lot of bad things have gone on. And I was concerned that if anybody knew what we knew, um, they could easily take us out. And I don't have children, but Laura has a young daughter. And um, I was kind of concerned for her. So the thought process in my head that morning was, well, this is simple. We know that this is fraud and um, we're very concerned about what we're seeing at minimum. Why don't you just call the FBI and we could give them all the papers and all the research we have and we can give it to them and then they can do their job and then we can go back <laughs> and take care of our health. But it wasn't that simple now, was it, Lara? <laughs> 
No. So it was an interesting thing. I just called the, you know, the local 1-800 number. This was after the Boston bombing. So I knew that there were a lot of um, FBI people in Massachusetts. Um, so I called and I said, oh, hey, I have an issue that I want to share with you. And they said, what kind of issue? And I said, well, it has to do with diagnostics and, um, you know, medical treatment. And they said, oh, you want to speak to Paul? And you know, I don't know who Paul is, but some guy gets on the phone with sort of a Boston accent. And um, he's like, yeah, wh what you got? And <laughs> I said, well, you know, I have some information on Lyme disease diagnostics. I mentioned that I had worked in biotech, but this had nothing to do with the companies that I had worked with. Um, he said, Lyme, Lyme disease. He's like, can you come in? And I thought, wow, what a strange response. And so we arranged um, for an on-site meeting. And quite frankly, uh, I was very nervous. I remember calling my dad and being like, the FBI wants to talk to me. <laughs> um, that's a little weird. Um, and I went to Staples and I printed out a whole bunch of the, the papers and the, you know, the work that uh, a lot that Laura had put together. And um, actually, we arranged for Laura and our other colleague to be piped in on a teleconference. And I was just crossing my fingers that I would wake up that day and that I would be able to function and actually, you know, be able to get clothes and shoes on and get on out the door. Um, and I remember I brought my dog because I was nervous. <laughs> so, you brought your dog to the FBI meeting? Yeah, the hell I did. I was like, I'm not going without the dog. <laughs> Uh, you know, my dog is like really my wingman. And so I brought him on the um, the subway and I went out and I went through the um, the metal detector and there was a federal attorney that met me. Um, his name was Nathaniel Yeager. He's worked on a lot of the opioid cases. And um, within a few minutes, we were turned over to uh, the FBI agents and in a conference room. And Laura and our other colleague piped in and we were there for about two hours and we went through uh, all the dirty details of what we had learned on, about diagnostics. Uh, one thing that was really helpful though, uh, in terms of my own experience, I had worked in big pharma with a diagnostics team. So, you know, Laura did so much of the work, more work than I did, but, you know, I, I did have enough of a background that I could I guess, justify my being there. Laura, can you share with us some of the dirty details, as Lara said, or, you know, the, <laughs> fra the fraud that was, because we we hear about this stuff. Some of it, it's like, is that real? Is it science backed? Is that just a made up fear we're hearing in Limeland, right? What mm -hmm. are some of the, the things you really found that were the real fraud going on in the community that you brought to the FBI? Well, we want to hear some of those details. Well, we don't like to say the F word, first of all. Um, and I will always preface it with alleged <laughs> or suspected. <laughs> so um, I just don't want to get any trouble. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not going to make any accusations, but um, what we ended up doing was putting together a lot of verifiable facts from documentation that is mostly publicly available, some of it FOIA'd. Um, and and we, we were able to to tell a story with it. And what that story tells is that back way back when, and I know a lot of people don't, don't want to 
you know, get into the ancient history of Lyme. But, um, you know, if we really want to fix the diagnostics, that's where we need to go because we need to change what happened at that point in time. And what happened was there was a vaccine in development for Lyme disease and the vaccine didn't work and there was a test that did work. And so basically a whole lot of people were going to get Lyme disease who had gotten the vaccine in the trial. That couldn't happen if they were going to get this vaccine licensed and on the market. And so um, there is an FDA meeting from June of 1994, where it's, it's stated explicitly that the case definition of Lyme disease needs to be changed for the purpose of going forward with these vaccine trials. And can I, can so, I stop you there? So are you saying, yeah. am I hearing this correctly, that we change the definition of Lyme disease so we can make a vaccine that's supposed to prevent you from getting Lyme seem effective because it's, it wasn't effective. Right. So when you get tested, it wasn't going to show that you actually had Lyme disease. So we made the testing right. worse to right. prop up a vaccine that didn't work. Is that what I'm exactly. hearing? Okay. Right. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just had to clarify to make sure I understood. Right. Right. Matt, the right. way I think about it is um, they tailored the test to make the vaccine look effective. So if you had the type of Lyme or the type of reaction to Lyme that the vaccine wasn't going to work for you, then you weren't gonna test positive on the uh, on the new test, uh, on the testing uh, parameters that they ended up selecting. So they wanted to portray the vaccine in the best light they could. And like, wow, look, everybody that tests positive, uh, this vaccine works for, right? So they, tailored the test to fit the vaccine. That's yeah. wild. Yep. And so we are still, we're stuck with that diagnostic method, the two-tier method, and now the modified two-tier method 30 years later. That's what we are still stuck with. And we're, and we're stuck with a very limited definition of Lyme disease. Exactly. Which, you know, one of the things that Leo started to talk about in, 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 uh, in the lawsuit is the importance of having a clinical diagnosis and uh, only allowing the diagnostic test to play a small element. But the, the, the challenge with backing into a definition to mm -hmm. meet the standards of a of a test that you want to you want to bring into the marketplace is you're now changing the the clinical parameters that doctors are going to be utilizing when determining whether or not what's presented to the doctor from the patient is in fact Lyme disease. Right. Right. So yeah, maybe to say it nicely, these tests were reverse engineered to prop up a vaccine that they knew was not effective. Uh, we can also argue the safety as well. When you look at the studies, they did monkey trials with this vaccine. And when you looked at the primates, they were full of spirochetes after taking the vaccine. So they knew it didn't work. Um, the company involved, I don't know if we can mention their name, but it's pretty easy to research. Um, you know, asked the FDA to call a meeting. In that meeting, um, you know, you had a group of uh, scientists, not all um, from the pharmaceutical industry, many from academia, and a decision was made that they would move the bar of these diagnostics, which that actually breaks all the rules on how diagnostics work, by the way. Um, but when they manipulated the diagnostic, they cut out 85% of the sickest with Lyme that have neuroline. So that's why, you know, all these people that you see online um, are super sick 
but they can't test positive. But, but Laura, I, 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 I don't want to lose, I, I don't want to lose this point because, mm-hmm. because when, <laughs> when, when we're starting to change definitions, it's having mm-hmm. more of an impact than just, just um, having the capacity to put what I will call, again, I know all of you want to be capped with the, the fraud word, what I will call snake oil. When we're putting mm-hmm. snake oil out into the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Leo, I, I need your help here, right? Because, um, because I want to come back to the diagnostic piece that you were, you were talking about, the clinical diagnostic piece, right? Because one of the things we've observed here at Sick Bootcamp is that patients are better at diagnosing Lyme disease than doctors are at diagnosing Lyme disease, right? Phyllis Bedford from the Lyme Light Foundation calls Lyme disease the supermarket. Uh, disease because you're more likely to be diagnosed in the supermarket than you are in your doctor's office, right? And I argue to many people before we met the three of you is that the reason it's easier for Lyme patients to diagnose each other in the supermarket than it is for doctors to diagnose you when you walk into a medical office is because the, the, the definition of the disease has been perverted. And when you pervert the definition of disease, it impacts or limits what the practitioner can can perceive. And when you limit what the practitioner can perceive, then the the clinical diagnosis goes sideways. So in addition to to putting you folks in jeopardy from the standpoint of being diagnosed with a properly um, constructed uh, diag- you know, uh, diagnostic test. It's also putting you in jeopardy and everybody else in jeopardy of not being diagnosed clinically because we're redefining the clinical definition of the disease. So give me your thoughts on that, Leo, as a guy who was screwed by, uh, by, the, uh, by the, the testing and maybe additionally screwed by the test because it changed the definition of Lyme disease. Rich, you're absolutely right. Um, the it's snowballed, right? It's building on each other. Um, the medical community sees that, hey, nobody's testing positive for Lyme disease. So it's now in everybody's head. Um, or it's actually uh, some neurological problem and they send you down the hall to the neuro department or they send you down the hall to the, you know, the psychiatric department, right? So it's um, the failure of the diagnostics has uh tainted the medical community's ability to clinically diagnose you because they're taught that uh, it's not a real thing, that the tests are all negative. And you know what? The tests are negative because they're terrible tests. So when you come from, uh, you know, Western medicine and you're supposed to be relying on objective results, but you don't understand that the uh, methodologies are flawed, you get where we're at today, which is where uh, folks that spend a lot of money on medical degrees, they have bad data. And that pervades uh, pretty much every part of the Lyme diagnostic process from the testing all the way through the clinical diagnosis. So let me share another piece with the two of you, because one of the things that we find ourselves often debating with, with Lyme literate medical doctors or or Lyme specialists, I like the term better, um, is what we should do with this problem um, definition of this disease, right? And some folks like Dr. McDonald and others have argued we have to divorce from the word Lyme um, because the word Lyme is charged because the word Lyme is not um, is not something uh, that captures the spectrum of this disease. And we should be moving towards using terms like 
uh, Borreliosis or uh, mm -hmm. anaplasmosis or, mm -hmm. you know, some mm -hmm. of these more refined definitions. We have other folks like us here at Tick Boot Camp who argue that we should just be taking control of the term and properly defining it so that it can result in a clinical diagnosis in a medical office rather than in the supermarket. And we argue that Lyme disease should be defined as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. And we believe that if that was the definition of Lyme disease, then when somebody went into their doctor's office, they could be clinically diagnosed. So I'd like the three of you in turn to give me your perspective on whether or not you agree with, by the way, our good friend and one of our mentors, Dr. McDonald's, and right. whether we should be divorced from the word Lyme or whether or not you should be taking control, whether we as a community should be taking control of the definition of Lyme disease, whether you like our definition, which is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease? I'll start. <laughs> so I am a big advocate of taking control. Um, control has been taken away from us. And as Leo said, it's been perverted and we need to take it back. And if you look at other movements throughout the last century and throughout history, that's what they've done. They've taken the bad word and they've made it their own. And so that's where I am. Uh, stick with Lyme, but we're gonna we're gonna get it back to a correct definition. Right, before you hand the mic over to your colleagues, tell me about uh, your opinion on our definition of Lyme disease. So I do think it is a little broad. Because when I, so when I talk about the definition, I'm, I'm frequently referring to what the CDC calls the surveillance case definition, or I might just shorten it to case definition. And so I'm approaching it from a more scientific standpoint. And, you know, if you go to the CDC website and you see, you look up case definition for Lyme, they have okay, you can diagnose it by A, B, or C. And, you know, it's the EM rash or it's serology. And these are the these are the bands you have to get on the IgM and the IgG, and it has to be within this time frame, right? That's what I am trying to get rid of. I'm trying to clear the deck of that nonsense. Okay, and what are you, and what are you, what are you now going to um, fill in that space after you clear the deck? Uh, well... <laughs> That's that's a whole other story that we haven't gotten into yet. Well, no, <laughs> so maybe so, you want to so let you, the others speak first. <laughs> you've, you, but you've argued. I want to stay with you for one more second um, sure. because I'm passionate about this definition issue. Um, tell me why you think calling our disease a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease is too broad, and how would you more narrowly define that term if our definition is too broad? Well, Lyme refers to a specific bacterium, the Borrelia burgdorferi spirochete, right? Correct. And, and we know so that's not, say, we know that it's never just Borrelia. Right. right. We know that. But I think there is a point to be made in saying, I have Lyme disease, I have anaplasmosis, I have Bartonella, you know, and listing them all. They all need to be diagnosed. You can't just say I have Lyme and expect somebody to realize that you have 18 other infections too. Okay. All right. So, so help me out. Give me, I'm going to press you a little bit harder. Um, how are you going to change my definition so that you have all of that included 
in the Lyme disease spectrum definition? Included in the Lyme disease spectrum. I'm not sure I'm following you there. Well, so I, I'm arguing that it's polymicrobial. Uh, right. and, 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 huh. and so that's the first place where we're separating from the CDC and most of the traditional people who are defining it because we, we, we have about 19 microbes now that science is defining as part of this Lyme disease spectrum. But we do know that, that uh, the research is showing that ticks can harbor up to 200 separate microbes. And we also know that once the microbe is spit into us, that the microbes that are being spit into us are also interacting with the microbes we're already harboring. And we yeah. have this really interesting polymicrobial infection that's that's created. We right. also know that it gets it get it migrates through our entire body if we do not get um we don't get assistance during that during that early uh treatment window that Leo had talked about. Uh and then we also know that it's really a chronic disease. It isn't this, is it acute, is it chronic? It's a chronic disease and we shouldn't be debating about that, at least in our view. So um, so as, I, as I'm starting to sort of bring you down this path of what our logic was in coming up with the definition, I want you to attack it. I want you to improve it for us so that we can do a better job if we're not really hitting the nail on the head. You know so what I yeah, go ahead, Lauren. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the, the perspective that I have, and I certainly understand where Alan McDonald is coming from, uh, in terms of Lyme treatment, you need to know what you're dealing with. And nobody, no, not a one of us is dealing with one thing. You know, it took me 20, more than 20 years to realize that I was dealing with four different types of um, bacteria that the tick that bit me was carrying. At least. Uh, I, at least, right? And I know, you know, look, the term Lyme has been a, a, a you know, abused, so to speak. You know, it's a disease that people who read People Magazine in People Magazine get, you know. So um, I like calling it personally tick-borne disease because there's lots of different tick-borne diseases. And if I had a, um, you know, if we really wanted to change the perception of what, and also take control, I, when I explain it to people, I liken the term Lyme to cancer. You know, someone says, you know, I have cancer. Well, what kind? You know, some cancers have a really good outcome, other cancers, not so much, right? But we're in an age of precision medicine and we're gonna be seeing precision antibiotics. So just saying Lyme, it's helpful, but it's not enough. I think tick-borne disease is, you know, and you also, you know, you have the acronym T TBD, right? And, you know, many other things like um, MBC, you know, metastatic well, breast cancer. That That's something that's a little bit more scientific and inclusive to me, but also reminds people that you're not just dealing with one bacteria. Right. So, Lara, let me, so let me challenge you on that, right? Because uh, even, even among the, the folks who are on this podcast today, we do know that that Laura's daughter um, did not get her disease from a tick bite, but she got it from 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 a congenital infection. Right? We know that Lyme disease can be transmitted through blood transfusions. We know there's growing evidence that Lyme disease can be transmitted sexually. Right? So one of the reasons why we decided to take out the the even though the name of our podcast is Tick Boot Camp. We, right. we decided to take out the vector element or the tick element is because it is too narrow in our view 
because it, it it then cuts out it cuts out the congenital piece it cuts out the blood mm-hmm. transfusion piece and it cuts out the sexual transmission piece which we think has to be included in the definition right so so the so the um so the argument that's being made from your colleague is that I'm being too broad right but right. I want to be broad enough to include her daughter in this definition I want to be inclusive enough to include anybody who has gotten this from a blood transfusion and I want to be inclusive enough to make sure that we're also being careful about recognizing that this can be transmitted sexually and that we need to be responsible partners and have conversations about how we can how we can um how we can be safe there so so Laura please pitch in because I want to get to my fellow lawyer and talk about the elements of this um as soon as as soon as we explore this with you two. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here going, pick me, pick me. <laughs> um, so I agree that at some point we need to get to um, something that is inclusive. However, we have not at this point after 50 years properly defined what is Lyme borreliosis, right? And that definition, as I referred to the CDC's surveillance case definition, how do you define a disease? It's defined by how it's diagnosed. These two things are not separable, okay? I agree. And so right now we have a test methodology that is not diagnosing Lyme borreliosis. Um, and, And to go way back again, not, not as way back as, um, as <laughs> the 94 meeting, but after the FBI sent us on a wild goose chase looking for um, whistleblower attorneys for about two and a half years, Lara ended up picking up the phone again, going, I think I'll call the FDA, Office of Criminal Investigation. And that led to a meeting with the FDA in person where we laid out for them how this disease definition was corrupted. And it started with that 94 meeting and how it has been maintained to this day is through the CDC's serum repository. So that two-tier test method is used to identify samples that go in the CDC's biobank. That biobank is then used as a tool for scientists to validate new tests, to run experiments, to include or exclude patients in their studies. And so- as- Well, Laura, so, but so <laughs> this point, because, because it, it is, it is the, 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 the case definition that all of the, all of the um, tools that you are just using to describe uh, the development of tests is for one strain of one bacteria, correct? And it's designed to miss 85% of the sickest people. Right. Okay, but but the, but the point is, it's one strain of one bacteria, right? We know that there are at least 12 different strains of, of Borrelia alone, and 11 of those 12 are not going to be tested under the under the under the the tools that are that you had just described that are available to researchers. Well, there there are tests on the market. Somehow they have passed. Well, because they've passed because they're inaccurate. Um, but there are t- tests on the market that do look at other strains. So it, it is not strains, just, right, and and, yeah. and 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 other microbes, right? So so 
um, but so I'm, I'm still, I'm still um, not tracking you with your, your difficulties with our definition. You agree that you're, you're arguing that, well, we haven't gotten to the point where we can even, we can even properly diagnose one of the bacteria that's a part of the spectrum of bacteria and viruses and protozoa that are, that are spit into us by it. So, so how does that undermine or, 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 or cause you to disagree with our definition of, of Lyme disease? Who controls the diagnostics controls the definition of the disease. I, I, I'm not sure that that's yeah. true. I think who, who controls yeah. the definition then controls the diagnostics. And like I said, they are inseparable. I agree, but I, but, <laughs> but but you you would you would agreed with me that the community has to take control of the definition, right? Yeah, um, yes, you agree yes, with yes. me that that we have to come up, we have to sweep out the the definition that is currently being used. But the place where I'm still struggling in our conversation, Laura, is you haven't given me what we're putting in the place of the definition. And I'm giving you a plan, right. I'm giving you something to put in the place, but I want to know why you disagree with that. We need to be able to diagnose with 100% accuracy people who that who are known to be infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. Okay. And what about, what about Bartonella? What about Anaplasma? What about Berlipia? Those have their own tests. Those are not Lyme disease. Those have their own tests. Lyme disease, Lyme disease, as we know it, is Borrelia burgdorferi. Yeah, so, okay. So we, Let's we, diagnose we that and then bring right. in all the others under the umbrella and figure out what we call that umbrella. Okay. Right. So, so you're sort of between us and, and Dr. McDonald, like McDonald yeah. says we should be divorced from Lyme. You're like, no, we don't want to be divorced from Lyme. We're just going to call that Borrelia and it's and, and it's spectrum of strains uh, Lyme. And then we're going to call all those other things, something else. So you're kind of in between uh, McDonald and us. Well, Lyme I think that- is a very specific thing. And so we need to, we need to diagnose That's that. Right. I think Lyme is really the starting point, right? You know, when somebody has Borrelia, they're probably going to have all the other things too. And, you know, what most doctors are doing is they're cobbling along like different specialty or niche diagnostics. You know, this test is good at getting, capturing the Borrelias. This one might be good at getting the, detecting Bartonella. This one might be good at the other one. So most of us who have gone down this road have been uh, tested by, you know, many different companies, many different times in our life. And I don't see that that is going to change. It's just that um, Lyme seems to be the most basic, you know, even though you can get the other strains and maybe not Borrelia, I've never heard of it. Usually you're going to get Borrelia and the others too. So it's a starting point, not an ending point. Yeah. So, so Leo, why don't you come and join us? Um, I, I want you to talk with me, you know, let's bring your Ivy League educated legal mind into this conversation and, uh, and tell me what you like or dislike about me breaking down Lyme disease into these um, four or five elements that we have created um, as a way of uh, defining the disease. Well, I don't hear a, a, a true disagreement here. Um, the affliction that we're all facing is the broader uh, multimicrobial problem that you're defining, Rich. Uh, I think what Laura's getting at is um, we need to continue to focus on the individual bacterium themselves as well, right? That's what I'm hearing here. I don't really hear a disagreement. Um, 
Now, branding is going to be tough with all those five medical words you've thrown together, Rich. Right now, Lyme disease is winning the branding wars and that the most people know what that is at all, right? So in the textbooks, right, uh, perhaps the uh, verbiage use should be different than what's used to communicate to the public. The medical community needs to understand this affliction as coming from multiple bacterium where maybe the best way to connect with the with the folks is by uh, helping them understand that Lyme is a broader term than we all thought it was. So that's my middle of the road lawyer answer for I know, so so let's stay with this so but because look one of the things that's really, really troubling to me is um, you're one of the smartest people in the world. You went to one of the top colleges and the top law schools in the world. You grew up a, you grew up with a mom who grew up in New England and who was very Lyme conscious. Yet despite being as smart as you are and as well supported as you are by a by a um, a conscientious mother, you didn't have the ability to get past the brand and keep yourself safe when you had very clear, you had a very clear opportunity to do that. So my argument to you is you, Leo, should have had the tools if the brand was properly defined to keep yourself healthy. And you should have had the opportunity to meet with a doctor who would have been able to clinically diagnose you so you could have had the early intervention and not have to deal with this all these years later. Give me a reaction to that. I agree completely. But I think that um, it's going to have to start with the medical community. Um, I would have never even known to whether or not the definition of Lyme was expanded or replaced. I would have never thought to not trust my doctor. Um, I would have never dug into it on my own. In fact, I didn't dig, dig into it on my own until the, the gals at Truth Cures called me. Um, most people are not going to do that. And so it has to start with the medical establishment. And that's, I that's love your definition, happen. Rich. I think that's exactly what's happening to people. It, it's a multi, uh, it, it's a multibacterial affliction. And until that's understood by the doctor I go to to clinically diagnose me, I'm not sure how much traction we'll get with folks that haven't yet got Lyme disease or Bartonella or anything like that by you know discussing what the definition should be or not. So let me, I'm going to ask the three of you to react to one more thing, and then Matt's going to start to take you through uh, your journey together and the epiphany that these two brilliant women had to 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 come to you and and, and talk about uh, about the class lawsuit. But talk to us about your your perspective on the Limex uh, approach to essentially creating a competition to bring uh, bring uh, different experts together to try to develop a diagnostic tool that will be more effective than the snake oil that's out there now. <laughs> um, well, I don't want to alienate any of your base, but I don't trust it. I, I, I don't. I don't trust it. I don't trust the process because we saw what happened with the HHS Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, and it was it was laughable. It was what, five years, six years of just okay. utter nonsense. And I, I phoned in some comments a couple of times. Um, one time what I did was I used my three minutes to play a, a video that I had made that was um, edits of a certain, a certain Yale doctor who has been 
you know, one of the biggest denialists for, for all of this time, all these 30 plus years, um, I had made a, a cut of a presentation that he gave to medical professionals that took every one of his quotes that was, that was denialist in some way. And it had, he was making jokes. He was, he was saying, oh, it's just, it's not AIDS. It's just Lyme disease. And, oh, people need to get an internetectomy because they're convinced they, they have this thing that they don't have. And it's just three minutes of the most vile comments that you can imagine coming from a medical professional and somebody who is held up as one of the experts on Lyme disease. And so I used my three minutes to call in and just play that video, play the audio. And actually, I think he was there. <laughs> yeah. I think he yeah. was on the panel at that time. Yeah. In this in this video, and you can watch it on truthcurist.org. Um, in this video, he's instructing, uh, I guess it was at a medical conference in Canada. And here you have this esteemed Yale expert in line instructing other physicians not to test for Lyme because, hey, you're not going to do anything for them anyway. Ha ha ha. So, you know, after, you know, Laura and I, I guess at this, uh, you know, at this stage in our life, we're real old timers. And one of the reasons we're going the legal route is because 30 years of activism and advocacy hasn't really changed a damn thing, you know? So, um, you know, at this point, we're older, we're wiser. And, I don't think anything is going to change until people, um, you know, the industry, the diagnostic companies um, are for are forced, right? And we know, um, we know damn well that Lyme is passed congenitally. Um, it's been documented in the medical literature and publications. Um, we did have some communication with HHS. We know that um, they're aware of the risk of blood transfusions. I have spoken to infectious disease uh, doctors in Maine, or not doctors, but doctor in Maine, who had an elderly woman patient who was living in a home, but somehow contracted, I think, Babesia. She'd obviously had no exposure to a tick because she was in a home, but the one thing she had was a blood transfusion. And so, you know, that required phone calls on his end. Sure enough, they tracked the blood, the blood that she had received uh, tested positive for Babesia. And this is something that HHS has not wrapped their mind around yet. And in fact, when they um, found out about the work they were doing, originally they wanted to partner uh, with Laura, but then at some point they came back and they said, hey, we don't wanna talk to you anymore because we don't wanna lose our pension, right? So my faith in um, the medical community and even our own um, government health officials is, very low. And one of the things I first asked when this was brought to my attention is kind of naive. Um, well, why aren't they working to come up with a better test? You know, why would they deny all this? Um, why would they stand up for a piece of technology that doesn't seem to be working? And what Laura and Lara can tell you much uh, better than I can is they're actually financially in invested in these tests. Um, the doctors themselves own the intellectual property that's used in these tests. Uh, some of the nation's most respected medical institutions own the intellectual property that's used in these tests. So uh, they have a vested interest in the status quo. 
not only uh, defending a piece of defective technology, but ensuring nothing else comes out that might challenge its status in the market. Uh, and that to me was really eye-opening uh, and uh, really drew the curtain back on the, uh, the motivation behind what, what should have been folks, you know, moving forward towards truth were instead defending the status quo because they're making money. Yeah, and I think we need to recognize the fact that these researchers and these doctors, they're not always, you know, even if they believe what they're preaching, which I question in t- times because of conflict of interest, as you're pointing out, Leo, you know, things can change. We get more information, we have to adapt, and we have to make new conclusions based on new evidence. I mean, a great example of that, you're obviously referring to Eugene Shapiro, right, who who is was was um, at Correct. the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group. And you know, he's made comments saying things like neurological Lyme is not a big deal. It's easily resolved. And I can say as somebody who suffered from neurological Lyme and Rich who witnessed me pre-neurological Lyme and then when I was sick with neurological Lyme, it is not easily treated and it's not something that you could easily recover from, right? I mean, I couldn't even communicate. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't be on a Zoom meeting like this. And it took quite a while for me to recover from that. You know, he's also said things that there's there's never been a documented case of congenital Lyme disease. It does not exist, right? That's a quote from Eugene Shapiro. But we know even the CDC now on their website says congenital Lyme disease is real. There's no more controversy over that. It's something that the federal agencies and the, even mainstream doctors have now accepted that congenital Lyme disease is real. So we our, our, our understanding of diseases change and there is a conflict of interest. And look, Dr. Benach, who is right here from Long Island, you probably are aware of his work back in the day. His wife was my high school science teacher, and he's somebody who did a complete 180. He said, chronic Lyme is real. Lyme can persist. It's a serious disease. And then he went and said, eh, it's really not a big deal. It's easily cured. It's easily treatable. I was wrong, right? So mm-hmm. now he's kind of at, at the later part of his career saying, I think I was I think I was right in the beginning parts here. This is more of a serious disease than I thought. So I think we have to be open to these ideas that there are unfortunately conflicts of interest and doctors that are just simply wrong with their beliefs, right? But mm-hmm. I do want to circle back because Laura, you were talking about the FBI before you went on to the FDA. And then you said that the FBI was so eager to meet with you and and Lara, and mm-hmm. then they gave you a two and a half year wild goose chase. So tell us, just finish up what that meeting was like. Give us some interesting oh, okay. tidbits of that meeting with the FBI. Okay. And then how yeah. they how they kind of really just, you know, for two years sent you on a wild goose chase. And then what led you to the FDA after the FBI? Okay. So um, the great thing is um, they were super kind. They were really interested in what we had to say. I mean, like I said, we were there for many hours. Um, the person, the lead FBI um, special agent that we met with um, eventually was promoted to become uh, the head of the FBI healthcare fraud unit. So he's in Washington, D.C. now. He's worked on the opioid cases. So if you've watched, uh, there's a frontline episode on the opioids. Um, you know, he was involved in all of that. Uh, his advice to us, first, they were really glad that we came forward Um you know, this is exactly, I guess, what they love, even though, um, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't my left life goal to be in their office. Um, they recommended that we get legal representation as soon as possible. And that there was really no way for this, you know, it, they were putting this in the box of like a fraudulent claims case. Um, which is, you know, it's kind of like if you're a hammer, then everything is a nail. Right. And so we took them at face value, like, hey, maybe this is a fraudulent uh, claims case. 
when reality, the criteria for a fraudulent claims case is very, very specific. Um, and there were some boxes there that we would not check, even though our data was accurate and they were really interested in it. What they do is they process, you know, they they go after fraudulent claims cases. So, you know, they can do that, but they weren't really able to do something outside of that. So um, we took their advice. We did speak to a lot of lawyers um, and we would get very, very deep in the process. Everybody would call us back right away and really wanted, you know, some of them we spent invested a number of hours with them going through the details. But ultimately, um, there was concern that the government wouldn't pick up the case. And when you have a fraudulent claims case, it's the government suing the manufacturer to recoup the money um, spent uh, to Medicare and Medicaid, right? So, you know, if we added this up, you know, maybe in the past 10 years, there's probably been $500 million charged to Medicare and Medicaid for false uh, or, you know, inaccurate, useless diagnostics. If you have a fraudulent claims case, you will recoup maybe three times that. So now you're, you know, what, $1.5 billion. This is really attractive to law firms. But, you know, what are the chances that the government is going to pick up your case when you actually have people in government who have been involved in the manipulation of the case definition of the disease and are holding patents and profiteering off of the diagnostics, right? So you could be right. You could have a great case. You could be able to prove it but not likely that the government is going to go after itself. So once once you realize this, talk talk to us about the meeting with the FDA. I mean, how did that even get on your radar? How did you get a meeting with the FDA? Did you simply pick up the phone and call them like you did the FBI? Uh, a little bit. Um, this would be the summer of 2020. Uh, we're now in that long COVID summer. Um, I was working at home and pulling my hair out um, by this time, I had left biotech and I was now working for probably the top. Um, I was working for one of Boeing's subsidiaries. So the 737 MAX is grounded and nobody's buying planes anymore. And I'm sitting here just grabbing my head, um, trying to keep working. And Laura and I were talking. We're like, well, what else more can we do? What else more can we do? And, you know, we started researching, like, well, who, who can we tell? Who can we talk to? And we came up with the FDA uh, Office of Criminal Investigation. And they're the ones, I guess, who investigate issues at the FDA. So I called and the woman did an intake and I gave her the information. It didn't take very long. And she said, OK, thank you. Um, I just write it down and send it off. And if someone's interested in speaking to you, they'll give you a call. I don't know, uh, maybe less than a week later, I got a call from um, someone in the DOJ. Um, and we spoke for over an hour. And, you know, he was really interested. And, you know, I was able to cross reference him on LinkedIn and see who it was and who appointed him to the position and yada, yada. Um, and then you know, he took the information and then I didn't hear anything back for almost a year. So I thought it was kind of dead and would go nowhere. And then in the summer of 2020, 2021, it's now a year later, um, I'm in a new role. I get a call at work one day from somebody, uh, John Shakatano with a heavy New York accent. I think he grew up in the Bronx and he's some investigator at the FDA. And he says, what's this complaint I have here? 
I need you to tell me more about it. So, um, you know, I shared with him the information I had and he wrote it all down and that was that. But then he called me back another day and he was really upset. And, you know, um, he's like, you know, now I know that we're getting somewhere, right? Because something has really jerked some, somebody's chain, right? And I guess that something was the truth. And he starts shaking me down on the phone and he's like, you know, do you realize that if what you say is true, heads are going to roll? And I said, well, you know, I, you know, that's not my goal. I just want you to fix this. And, you know, if that's what has to happen, whatever it takes, but look at what's happening to patients here. And, um, you know, he started asking me really pointed questions that I really couldn't verbally address while I was at work. Also, it would so much be so much more helpful if I could show him the docu documents and we have you know, graphs and, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, we can use, we have their own science. I can just show them the science, right? And so I said, you know, John, I think the best thing for me to do is just show you, right? I mean, I can talk to you on the phone, and you know, but I don't, I think it would just be so much easier. You know, um, the FDA has an outpost here in Massachusetts. You're not, you're what, what, 20 minutes away from me? Why don't we just come in and we'll present to you? And so um, that's how that happened. So, so I he, called Laura. I said, we need a presentation for the FDA. Um, we uh, hadn't met Leo yet. So we were able to find a lawyer uh, that we just had to pay um, to represent us. And we called a clinician, Dr. Ken Liebner. Um, and we had another friend of ours, Carl Tuttle from New Hampshire, who sat on one of the New Hampshire Lyme commissions. And so we all went in together. And Laura put together the most amazing presentation. Um, yeah, no words. That presentation was beautiful. Anyway, so we were there presenting to them for at least two hours. And, um, you know, they had piped in a lot of their regulatory experts uh, on the call. So we had one in front of us. And then we had other regulatory experts that were based in other areas of the United States. Um, again, we could cross-reference and see that this was some of their top regulatory people, and they would not have put them in that meeting if they were not very concerned with the, you know, the information we had. Um, yeah. Anyway, Laura, why don't you share more about how that meeting went? <laughs> sure. Yeah, it was, I, I toiled over that presentation and um, you know, we, we ended up running it past our lawyer multiple times. And, and like I said earlier, that presentation told the story of how this went down. It tells the history of how the case definition was revised to prop up the vaccine. And it's indisputable It's we, we had, we had five, 10 K applications from test kit manufacturers that we had an expert in that field review and point out all the deficiencies and all of the problems with them. At the end of that meeting, we said, you need to pull every Lyme test that's on the market. They all need to be recalled because they all refer back to a device that was improperly cleared in the first place. And guess what they said? They said, yeah, it looks like that's the case. <laughs> Right. So what have they done at this point? Nothing that, that we're aware of. We, we were told that an investigation was opened, 
but we haven't been able to get any information. We're told that we need to FOIA that information and that's the only way we can get it. So but one they more agreed with you. They, they agreed they with you, they concurred, they and then basically said, if you want to talk to us again, send us a freedom of information request, and otherwise we're not going to talk to you. Yeah, we ended up, um, we wrote up meeting minutes that they had the opportunity right. to review and removed the part about them agreeing. And um, those those meeting minutes are in, in the federal record somewhere. So you could actually FOIA those meeting minutes. We could hand them to you. <laughs> we'll email them to you if you'd like. But yeah, you, you could FOIA those minutes too. Yeah, you could FOIA presentation. If you're comfortable <laughs> sharing all of that, we can link to it in the show notes of this podcast. So people that are listening can click on the link in the show notes yeah. and open up the presentation and also the minutes. I think mm -hmm. that'd be helpful backup to share to this podcast if you're able to. Yeah, so the presentation and the, the meeting minutes are, um, especially the meeting minutes, they really encapsulate well uh, what went on in that meeting, um, what was presented and what was agreed upon. Um, you know, I think probably one of the critical moments was when we had that predicate device 510K application on the table and we were sitting across the table with their expert and their expert um, agreed with us on record that that um, application should never have been accepted that way. And that is the predicate device that 27 years of or more of Lyme diagnostics have daisy chained onto. Right? Give, so us, they, give us a little bit more about what that means though, Lara. So this device is used, it's it's like a, a commonality in all Lyme tests and it's used yeah. to validate whether a sample of blood mm -hmm. in a Lyme test is positive for Lyme disease or not. Am I, is that what this is? Uh, the 510 cap, the 510k pathway um, refers to um, the regulatory path to getting a diagnostic or device approved by the FDA. And what it is, um, it, and I shouldn't say approved, I should say cleared. Okay. Um, the pathway for devices and diagnostics is really, it, it's not quite as exhaustive as what it is for um drugs, right? And maybe some other treatments. And so, you know, in the US, we value innovation and we want to be able to get new technologies to the market quickly. And so what they will do with diagnostics and devices, um, not all of them, but many of them, it goes in and, and somebody puts one in an application and it's, it's the first one and it's considered a predicate device. Now, if a competitor comes along and they wanna improve it or they wanna even make a similar device um, to get their application approved, you know, maybe quickly with less red tape, they'll say, oh, our device is just like the predicate, the one in front of it, right? And they can make the case for that in their application that really this is the same thing as something you've already approved. So, hey, we don't have to do too much of a deep dive here. We'll give you all data. It's like, um, you know, product A, and that's just, it, it kind of like they daisy chain onto each other. It's like connecting extension cords, right? Um, and Matt, usually, I just wanted to, yeah. Laura, I just wanted to really drive home the difference between the very exhaustive and very intensive drug approval process uh, that new medications have to go through or even kind of invasive medical devices and contrast that to the 510K clearance pathway, 
which doesn't require uh, any clinical testing. Um, the, the information submitted to the FDA is de minimis. It's basically a, a rubber stamp. Um, they do not test the safety of these. Uh, the FDA does not police the safety of these tests or the efficacy of these tests. Uh, and the policy there is kind of, you know, nobody's ingesting this stuff or it's not going into the human body. So we got uh, enough problems as it is with limited resources. So they, they put this kind of fast track together. And if you can convince the FDA that it's close enough to one that they rubber stamped last time, then uh, they'll rubber stamp it for you to sell. I just wanted to make that very clear that the the 510k pathway is a, a very very low bar to clear. So Leo, I just want to make sure I'm hearing I'm processing all this correctly because it just seems like there's so much. And I'll use the word again. I know you're you're not comfortable on on that end, but this 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 fraudulent or risky or questionable story that we keep hearing, which is based on just facts, and even even the meeting that that Laura and Lara had with the with the FDA, they said the process of approval for this first device used in the lawn testing process was flawed, correct? Is that is that accurate? Am I hearing that correctly? And then from there, that became the gold standard. And every test created yeah. after that 30 years ago said, hey, I copied mm-hmm. off that original one, your golden standards. I'm good, right? I'm a, I'm a good test. FDA says, yup, you're good. That's a valid, that's a valid Lyme test. But the standard, the gold standard has been flawed since the get-go. And the FDA admitted that to you in your meeting, correct? Yes. And we know not only do they admit it, but to Leo's point that the process to get these things approved is very lax anyway, right? So I think you're, this is, this is now, now we're starting to understand why this lawsuit that you have with Leo is so important here, right? So timing and, and all this, I don't think is a coincidence here. So you walk away from the FDA, you have this meeting, they acknowledge it all, and now you haven't heard from them since. And shortly after, this is when you meet Leo, right? So talk to us about how you're using everything you've learned from your research, your discussions, and your fight to then find Leo and work together to put together a lawsuit about Lyme testing being inaccurate and how Lyme testing is causing so much suffering in the Lyme community. Right. Well, at that meeting... Um, aside from the 510k that came up, and I believe the quote was, um, this application should never have been accepted this way. So that's when we knew right there, you really do uh, have a, probably have a, a legal case, right? It may not be fraudulent claims, but you, you have something else. The other thing that the FDA was very concerned about was the false marketing, right? And there are any number of companies engaged in this. So, um, that was something for them that would be easier to tackle than the issue of the 510Ks. So this kind of um, renewed our energy a bit because we now had them sort of admitting on record that they shared the same concerns that that we have. Um, I knew from my industry experience um, that there are all kinds of issues with the 510K pathway and that even people in industry have been complaining to the FDA, uh, the FDA that, hey, this is not rigid enough, you know, there's stuff going on, we need to do better. And so we will see the FDA even more recently announcement announce like, hey, we're making improvements to the 510k process. Um, But they're not really going back and fixing Lyme disease test kits. So um, Laura and I continue to push forward. We now had this great presentation that she had created and um, we got really good at delivering it. (laughs) 
so it was more emails and phone calls. Um, we presented to the Massachusetts Medical Board of Registration. <laughs> um, again, some more government people. Last week, we, we presented to one of the Massachusetts senators, right? And we just kept going. But I think the important thing is we may have a lawsuit against let's get checked. But this affects, you know, whatever happens here, it, it actually can has implications to all Lyme disease testing. It's like the so first just, domino in my mind, right? This is the first exactly. domino of the pool. Okay. Right. So if you're, you know, someone listening to this podcast and you say, well, I didn't lose, I didn't use let's get checked. This doesn't apply to me. Actually, it all applies to you because the test you took, um, probably a 99% chance that the test you took from whatever manufacturer was approved through the same pathway. But, right. but Laura, isn't the isn't the challenge with the particular party that you're suing, not that they just used a faulty gold standard, uh, not that they used a pathway for approval that was was flawed, mm -hmm. but what they did is they took this out of the hands of a doctor. See, if we if we if we have a standard that's flawed, and we have a and we have a um, a test test flawed, but we have a but we put it in the hands of a clinician who is supposed to be giving you a clinic clinical diagnosis anyway, and determining how to weigh that test. That's very different than handing it off to lay people and letting lay people use this test to either clear themselves or not clear themselves when when they when they're not in a clinical setting. So, isn't the real problem here that this particular company took an extra step? and put snake oil in the hands of people who don't have the ability to evaluate how to use that snake oil. That's right. exactly Absolutely. right, Rich. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And it's not just this company, it's a burgeoning um, at-home testing market that's coming out. And uh, the state of New York is banded. Uh, and there are several other states on their way. I think Rhode Island might be on its way. Um, for the reasons you just said, a regular person does not have the background to evaluate the limitations of these tests, uh, the, the results that they're handed. They don't know what to do with them when they are handed. Uh, and, you know, they, they want these companies want to skip the middlemen, but the middlemen are, are our doctors. So that is really one of the reasons we focused in on let's get checked uh, rather than this is a target rich environment. Uh, but the reason we wanted to do this first is because we felt this was where people were going to face the most harm. And it's where they are facing the most harm. And we've talked about all the other places where, uh, you know, where where the the uh, the gold standard is flawed and the pathway to approval is fraud uh, is flawed. And, and, and that's certainly something that's important for this community to understand. But just the very name of this, let's get checked. Right. I mean, that name itself screams out to me, of course, uh, you know, snake oil. Right. Because it, it, it's saying to me, look, take this test. You know, this is sort of like Theranos 2.0, where it's let me take a little little prick of your finger. Let me get a little piece of your blood, a little drop mm -hmm. of your blood. And 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 we're, we're going to help you decide whether or not you want to see a doctor. Okay? Frankly, I'll tell you, I don't particularly like doctors. I don't want to go to right. a doctor. I don't have to. And if I'm getting something where I could just get checked and 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 not have to go to a doctor, I'm in. Right. I'm in. Right. Yeah. And right. and we recognize that in the Lyme world, 
affordability of medical care is an enormous issue. And there are people out there who who can't afford to go to a Lyme doctor, a specialist, right? There's so many out there who are who are self-treating and self-managing their illness and just barely getting by because who can afford the thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars up front and the ongoing costs plus all of the meds that you're gonna need, right? Okay. And so we think that again, by going at the root of the problem, getting getting an accurate definition and an accurate test will open the floodgates for people to be able to get diagnosed, get treatment, and then go to a doctor. Well, nobody disagrees with that, Laura, but what you're doing is actually, I think, even better than that, right? You're not saying what Tick Bootcamp is saying is let's take control of the definition, and we've already had fun disagreeing about that one. That's <laughs> why I love you even more, Laura, than I did before. Um, th that was a fun conversation for me, quite frankly. <laughs> But really what you're doing, I think, is really smart. And I really I really appreciate the legal strategy that the three of you have come up with. And that is, hey, let's take this case where we have a group of people who are exploiting flaw after flaw after flaw. After flaw. You were mm -hmm. talking about this dog piling. And, and what they're doing <laughs> is they're now pushing this out directly to consumers and they're and they're and they're putting consumers in a position where they're actually increasing their risk, right? That's taking it to a very different level. Once you're able to now hold them responsible for that, now everybody else begins to shudder and they start saying, wait a minute, maybe exactly. we have to be more careful about this pathway we have for getting approval. Maybe we shouldn't use that pathway. And then they start to ask themselves the next question, which is, wait a minute, maybe this gold standard, which we know is a flawed standard, is not the standard we're going to be using. And then they keep walking it back to the point where we get to where you want to get, Laura, but it starts where you guys are starting. I just love exactly. this strategy, and I don't know how you collectively came up with it, but however you did, it's absolutely brilliant. And I love where you begin because it then opens up all the opportunities to walk back, Laura. So where I disagree with you, once again, so we're going to have to love we're going to have to love agreeing to disagree with one another. It's not starting with controlling the definition. You work back to that after you hold people accountable for taking advantage of the flaws and then just pushing it to a place where you're taking people away from having a clinical diagnosis, which is all you can really have with Lyme disease. Right. Exactly. And the strategy was Leo's. Laura and I had, had looked at this in so many different ways and talked to so many different lawyers, but when we were actually able to meet with Leo and run through the information, you know, in a few different sessions, he's like, oh, hey, you know, here's a path. And, you know, it was- Finally, somebody who happy day, A happy day for us. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> everybody yeah. hates lawyers. Finally, we have people. Yeah, we love ours. We love our lawyer. Really <laughs> love our lawyer. Look at that. Yeah. I love um, that, Leo. The stars aligned. I mean, they walked into my office and I'm a plaintiff's attorney through and through with a background in biology and who had been suffering terribly from Lyme disease due to a faulty diagnostic. Um, there's all kinds of words for how that kind of synchronicity happens, but it happened. And I went through a lot of different legal theories to try to figure out what's the best way to help the most amount of people. That was always our goal. Um, how do we get this out there? How do we stop this from continuing to happen? And um, 
ultimately we just we landed on a consumer protection class action and the class action mechanism was great here because it allows just one person to step up and bring a claim on behalf of really the entire united states um and it allows that person to do that for what might seem like oh not a whole lot of money Nobody, no lawyer is going to bring a case uh, over a $140 line test, right? Um, it's just not economically feasible. In, in these types of class actions, there, there will be six-figure fees uh, for experts, uh, for travel costs, court fees. They're expensive lawsuits to bring, but we're going to be able to aggregate everybody who's purchased a Let's Get Check case into one uh, very manageable uh, set of legal claims. And we decided to proceed under uh, the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Act because our, our client was from Massachusetts, of course, too, but Massachusetts is in the middle of Lyme country. Um, it's top of mind here. Um, Consumer Protection Act in Massachusetts is pretty darn good. Uh, so when we put all those pieces together, we thought we had a pretty good shot of uh, of being successful. But really, success for us is what we're doing right now, getting the word out. Um, if we get thrown out of court tomorrow, so be it. But at least there's something out there explaining to folks the risks of these tests, the risks of this business model of skipping doctors and selling diagnostic tools directly to regular folks. Uh, it, it was really more about uh, about educating the public and just making this problem known. That has always been our goal. So in a lot of ways, we feel like we're, you know, we've done, we've checked a huge box just by being here with you, Rich and Matt, and, and we really appreciate you having us because this is what we did this for. Well, but you know, Leo, we're actually more excited than just just the political elements of a, of a lawsuit. And you and I, as lawyers, know that lawsuits, in many cases, are political tools, and they're very powerful political tools. But I also think lawsuits, to be successful, have to be brought at the right time, right? And one of the things that I'm reminded of, as uh, I'm I'm quite a bit older than you, Leo, uh, there were times early in my career when I was doing plaintiffs' work where we couldn't get a recovery for a concussion, right? And then we came to a place as a culture where we understood what CTE was. We understood how, how severe concussions can be. And all of a sudden, we started to recover for our, our clients who were suffering from concussions. And I think you folks, quite frankly, have also sort of caught the wave at the right time. I think if you brought this lawsuit 10 years ago, Leo, I don't think you would have had much of a chance. But folks are now aware of what Lyme disease is. As a culture, we understand what's happening. Um, we're, we, we're, we're on this on the cusp of this post-COVID um, environment. I think you have a great chance, not just of using this as a political tool and, and getting the attention that you're beginning to get in this community. And we are so excited to help you amplify that. But I think you're in a good place legally. I really do. I think the time for this lawsuit has come. And I think your theory is really brilliant. And I really believe that you have a chance to not only recover for all these people, but then have all of the policy changes that we started to talk about in a really excited way begin to happen, in my view, backwards rather than Laura's way of, of, of frontwards. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, 
as you were mentioning, Rich, too, we hope that there's public policy changes that happen. But what I really hope is behind closed doors, companies are second guessing this whole method of delivering diagnostic tests of the 510k pathway, of um, this gold standard that's been rubbish for almost 40 years. Uh, so we hope to affect change publicly, privately, um, and and legally. So look, Leo, I can tell you that if I was, and I don't represent any, any of these companies, any of these testing companies or pharmaceutical companies, but if I did, after I read your complaint last night, I can tell you there would have been a quick memo sent out to my client right after reading your complaint. It's really well done. And I think you really capture the essence of this. And I think I think you have them shuddering. I think you do. So congratulations. It's really well done. Thank you. Yeah, well, for us non-lawyers, sorry, sorry to drop it. For us non-lawyers, what is a class action lawsuit? I just want to make sure we understand this, right? Because how I understand this from my very basic legal knowledge of law and order watching as a, as a kid, it sounds <laughs> like this is something that you're filing a lawsuit on behalf of the entire population of people who have used this particular let's get checked test. Is that is that how this works? So it's just that you're filing mm -hmm. on behalf of the, the entire population? Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's about right, Matt. Um, we're filing on behalf of everybody who's purchased one of these tests. Use is tangential. Um, the part of the, of the consumer protection statute we're under is deceptive advertising, right? So what really matters legally, right, is, you know, is whether or not they omitted important things that would have changed your consuming behavior. If you had known these tests were wildly inaccurate, would you have bought them? If you had known that uh, the box says Lyme disease, but it's only going to tell you about one strain of bacteria, would you have bought it? Uh, if you had known that this device is not going to give you a medical diagnosis, would you have instead gone to a doctor instead of paid the money for the test? So while the legal aspect focuses on the money spent on the test and who bought it and when, um, we, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that people are getting hurt by these tests, right? The, the class action mechanism can't address that, unfortunately. It does not address injuries to, to bodies, to people. So we had to focus on injuries to pocketbooks to get where we are today. And one of the things I really hope this lawsuit does is it wakes up these, these types of attorneys that do personal injury. And we're starting to see some of this. Uh, folks are winning uh, personal injury lawsuits against um, doctors and companies for misdiagnosing Lyme, not diagnosing Lyme. And hopefully we're arming them with a little bit more information that they can go one by one for every person that's been personally injured by a bad test and, and uh, you know, get compensation for those folks. The class action mechanism doesn't allow that. We have to just focus on the money lost. But uh, our hope is on a, on a larger scale to kind of uh, incentivize and educate the types of attorneys that will bring an individual lawsuit on behalf of one person who suffered from Lyme that shouldn't have because of one of these tests. So Leo, what are the next steps with this, right? Because I almost want to see, and maybe this is a bad idea, I almost want to see this go to go to trial, be televised, and have nothing but all kinds of cameras on this to bring light to the situation, right? I mean, what's a good outcome here? You know, in, you hear terms when it comes to legal stuff, you can settle out of court, you can do things like, you know, what is what what is the goal of Truth Cures and your work with Laura and Lara and, and what you're doing? You know, 
where are we at the lawsuit? I think it was just filed this summer, right? And what do you see moving forward? And what are your hopes from this? So the lawsuit is in its infancy. Uh, we filed in late July and um, we just got into the courthouse. So we don't know where it's going to go. Um, we face some legal hurdles, mostly procedural um, things that have nothing to do with whether or not we're right about the lawsuit, but some the way the court works or whether or not this is appropriate for a class action. We'll have to clear those hurdles first. Um, but however this resolves itself, whether it's a settlement or we go all the way to trial, uh, what we're looking for is two things. One, we want everybody to get their money back, right? They, they bought a test that they never would have if they had known the truth about it. But what we're really more focused on is what's called injunctive relief. We want to change the way these tests are marketed. Um, and just to put it simply, we want everybody to be warned about the material limitations of these tests, if they're even allowed to be sold at all anymore. So that is what we are really going for here. And whether that uh, happens in a settlement outside of court or we have to go the distance, which we will, um, we want people to be warned. We want them to know that this technology has severe limitations and uh, that at the end of the day, you need to go see a doctor and preferably a specialist. So uh, how, I mean, again, I, I don't want to put you in the spot too much. Could this go on for a decade? Could this go on for years? You know, what what is a typical turnaround time for a legal case like this? I know people oh. listening are going to want to know like, hey. A, where do I go to get updates? And B, how long should this take for us to get some updates wherever we can find them? Years. Absolutely. Years. Um, these This could drag on for, I mean, some of these big cases can drag on for a decade. Um, we don't, I don't have, I'm waiting on some information to better assess on how much fight we're going to uh, come up against. But uh, absolutely, Matt, this this will be a years, a years long endeavor. Absolutely. And will information be posted on the, on the truth cures website as it's able to be shared with the general public? Where can people go to keep up with this as, as results are able to be shared? So we are going to make uh, the filings available on truthcures.org, but also, you know, this is a federal lawsuit. So um, everything is available online. Uh, the PACER website is the public portal for all federal filings. And in case anyone wants to take a look at what's going on there, uh, the information you need to find this case, uh, one, it was filed in the United States District Court of Massachusetts. So that's the first thing you'll enter. And then the case number uh, is 23-CV dash one one three nine one and uh as things progress in the case they will all be posted to this which is basically the federal government's listserv for federal cases so we what we'll do is we can put that information in the show notes as well and link out right to that website we will absolutely be linking out to truthcures.org but this brings me to my final question before rich picks back up which is it sounds like this is not going to be the last lawsuit that you're doing. And there you have on your website a form where people can go and give you information about what other Lyme tests they may have taken 
And you're going to use that for potential future lawsuits, not just against this one particular testing company. And in the dropdown list, you have LabCorp, you have Quest, you have a lot of these major testing companies. So as a call to action to our listeners, first, we want to tell people to go to truthcures.org forward slash Lyme tests, plural, and just submit your information. It's your, your name, some very basic information, your email address, and what test you took. And there's an option there. And this information can be used in future lawsuits, I believe, Leo, if you can correct me if I'm wrong here, to have the substantial backup of people that were using these tests and were using tests that were really falsely advertising their accuracy. Is that is that correct? That's absolutely right. We hope to um, bring this to the front door of other testing companies. What we found is there's only a few technologies that play behind all these companies. Um, so once I understood that the technology is flawed and, you know, Laura did most of this legwork, she traced all the way back through retailers to the manufacturers, to the IP. So we now know which companies sell which tests. So while, you know, you'll see uh, uh, in the survey that there's a bunch of different companies there behind all these companies, there's really only a few bits of flawed technology. So, Laura, um, Madam Detective, uh, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the transformational nature of this, right? You've been on a journey for a long time, right? It was a personal journey of illness. It was the journey of a mother trying to protect her child uh, and trying to get answers for her child. Uh, it was a it, it was a community activist uh, who started a not-for-profit. And now you find yourselves, now you find yourself in this really interesting place. Um, where um, where you're now um, you're now a part of a really powerful federal lawsuit. So talk to us about how this has been transformational for you personally. How this has all sort of come together for you. How you would have never recognized back in the day when you were a sick uh, young woman. You're still young, but still a, a younger woman um, who um, who now finds herself where you find yourself. How has this been transformational for you? In, in several ways. Um, I think I posted on Facebook today, um, never would have imagined way back then that I'd find myself today suing pharma and medical device companies and, um, you know, tracking, tracking the FDA's visits on my website. <laughs> it's truly not something that anybody could imagine ever doing. <laughs> and on top of that, I talked about my daughter and how, how I really started down this path because of her, because I wanted to make sure that she was okay and she is okay. And I feel so fortunate to be able to say that knowing how many other kids out there are not okay. And in a way I went into this to save her and, and she saved me. Yeah. And you're saving everyone else, right? Because that's really what purpose is. It's, it's really finding what you were created to do. Right. And, and, and one of the most important things, uh, and I want to talk to you, uh, Lara, about this, one of the most important elements of a healing journey on Lyme disease um, is to find purpose in all the suffering. 
Um, and if you're just suffering, you just suffering, you just suffer, and you can't see any purpose to it, it makes it almost impossible to heal because emotionally you're 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 just stuck in this PTSD loop, and you're in fight or flight, and it's immunosuppressive. And when you find purpose, it puts you in a position where you can take a healthier approach to moving forward on your healing journey. So talk to us about how that has occurred for you, not only in the partnership with with my my new favorite adversary, but also in just all the work that you're doing, how this has been personally transformative for you and how this has helped you on your healing journey. Yeah, you know, well, what I will say is, um, you know, before things got really bad with Lyme, I had a great life, I had purpose. I certainly didn't need Lyme to become a better person. Um, but having gone through this, of course, you do become a different person. Um, I think a lot of healing started happening for me um, mentally, um, physically, and emotionally uh, when I actually was able to work with the truth. I had been gaslighted for a number of years. Um, anyone with Lyme will know that often you're blamed for your disease. Um, you know, it can become a very toxic and unhealthy dynamic with your family members who don't believe you or, you know, think that you're either being lazy or, you know, wanting attention. Um, you know, a lot of things, you know, it, it's, it's hard working and as good as I was, I would say a lot of things needed to change. I had to be really willing to fight for my life, stand up for what my values and behaviors are and, um, and the truth, even if nobody else could understand, right? You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I mean, you can't validate your self-worth based on your job title or any of your accomplishments. I mean, Lyme and, you know, illnesses of this nature just ground you. Uh, and overnight, you're really just a puddle of nothing. Um, I think where I stand today is um, I'm probably more passionate about human health than I have ever been, all the different dimensions of it. Um, I still really enjoy working in biotech. I love working with scientists and engineers. Um, while I work in an HR capacity, uh, this work with Laura and with Truth Cures has really brought me out of my HR box and into regulatory, quality, marketing, market access. You know, all the things that go on and need to go on um, legitimately, um, you know, so that a patient can get diagnosed and then, you know, actually a company is incentivized to work on a treatment. They can't do that if they no one there's no numbers to be counted of who may be ill um so um the process when it's done with integrity um you know for me is still inspiring um i just want to be a part of the good work that's being done there and have a more active role in getting something uh, directly into the hands of patients whether it's a diagnostic or a treatment um, and certainly anything I can do to get the bad stuff off the market. Um, you know, I'm hundred percent all in. I love working with Laura and I love working with Leo. I'm so lucky, um, you know, to have, have them, uh, on my team or to be on their team. <laughs> be teammates together. Yeah. So, so Leo, let's, we're going to end with you. I, I want you to talk to us about how this has been a transformative for you, uh, you know, a young man who had to go on a Lyme disease journey. Um, and, uh, and, and to this day, you're still, uh, you're still healing, but to have an opportunity to get both professional fulfillment and personal fulfillment out of serving so many sick people and how that's helping you 
through serving other people to heal yourself, both emotionally and physically? Well, Rich, I think you said it earlier. I mean, um, it's given me a purpose. It's, it's given me, um, a reason to, uh, to live with this disease. Um, it's given me, uh, you know, I'm a fighter by nature. It's giving me something to punch at, right? I don't feel like I'm sitting here a victim. Um, I feel like I'm taking the reins. I feel like I'm turning something that is what is life altering and turning it around and doing something good with it. And by addressing diagnostics, which we believe is the root of so many adverse outcomes for Lyme patients, um, I feel like I'm putting my time and talents to the most use possible. If I can prevent what happened to me from happening to one other person, it will be the most important thing I do with my law degree. Well, that's a beautiful and perfect way to end this really powerful podcast. I can't thank the three of you uh, enough for for taking your time out of uh, out of your really busy schedules to spend time with us and folks in our community. And again, I can't thank the three of you enough for doing all the brilliant work that you're doing for folks in the Lyme disease community. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you both Matt and Rich. And for anyone listening, um, please feel free to check us out on Truth Cures. Laura and I are often very available. So read our blogs. Um, just yesterday, Laura wrote a demand letter to the FDA. You can see what she wrote. It's pretty magnificent. Um, oftentimes we'll have um, new things popping up here and there. There's a way to communicate with us with like a Wix app. And um, we'd like to stay connected to those in the community.